0: You find your seats and turn to Ephesians chapter one. Again, that's Ephesians chapter one. We'll be starting in verse fifteen this morning. Ephesians 1, verse 15, if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. For this reason, because I have found or heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers Dear Lord, our Father, God, we come, Lord, with the same prayer this morning. God, I pray that our church would know the power, Lord, the power of the resurrection that raised Jesus from the dead and lifted him to the right hand, Lord. God, I pray that we would understand that power towards those who believe, Lord, that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge, Lord, to know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us, Lord. Yet I pray for this, Lord, and I pray that we would understand the relationship between Christ and the church. Lord, that you not only gave him all authority, Lord, that all things are under his feet, Lord, but you also gave him to the church, which is his body. God, I pray that you would help us through the Spirit, Lord, just understand this profound truth, Lord, that we would have just a glimpse, Lord, into the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. That as we look into this important subject, Lord, we would understand the weightiness of the marriage covenant itself. God, this is what we pray in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. Today we're going to be continuing the sermon series on marriage that we started last week. If you missed the uh, sermon last week, uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it and um, the reasons for taking a break from Philippians and spending at least four Sundays on the subject of marriage, uh, looking into God's word uh, and what it has to say about marriage. Uh, Last week, I titled the sermon Marriage According to Genesis. This week, I am titling the sermon Marriage According to Paul, Marriage According to Paul, I said last week, uh, we are going to start deep. Last week, this week, we're going to start with some deep theology. Theology that uh, is really foundational to the covenant of marriage. And then we're going to move from this deep theology, which will be our foundation, to more practical application. And we'll start that next week where we'll see a little bit more uh, of practical instruction that scripture gives us uh, within the marriage covenant. Uh, Last week, we focused really on what marriage is. What marriage is. And I would like to do a quick review on this. We looked at Genesis 1 through 2 because Genesis is foundational to just about everything. And it's definitely foundational uh, to marriage and really explain what marriage is. And I pulled out five truths that Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us about marriage. And so let's do a quick review. The first truth was this. Genesis 1 and 2 teaches us that marriage is foundational to the family. Genesis 1, 27 says this. God, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Malachi 2.15 says this, did, did he not make them one, that's Genesis, he's referring back to Genesis, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union, and what was the one God seeking? godly offspring. Marriage is the most important relationship within the family. Therefore, the marriage relationship needs to be a priority within the family. This brings me to the second truth that we looked at last week. Uh, Genesis teaches us that the man and the woman are meant to be complements to each other. They're meant to complement each other. We learn that there's a Compre- uh, Complementary nature to creation itself. You have the heavens and the earth. You have day and night. You have evening and morning, land and sea, the sun and the moon, plants and animals. All complement each other, all related to each other, but not the same. They're different. They're related, but different. They complement each other. And this is true for man and woman, too. A pair, a couple, related, similar, both humans, but not the same, not interchangeable. But instead, they complement each other, just like the rest of creation. This brings me to the third truth that we learned last week. Marriage is a one-flesh union between a man and a woman. Again, the man and the woman complemented each other not just emotionally not just spiritually not just in their roles but even physically it's beautiful especially when you consider how a woman was made from the flesh of man meaning the sexual union as we learned last week is more than a union it's a reunion where man becomes one flesh again with his wife in fact i heard something last week as I've been listening and studying on this subject that I just thought was profound, maybe, if anything, just poetic. We are drawn to the places where the pairings of creation meet each other. The heavens and the earth, we are drawn to stare out into the horizon. Day and night, we are drawn to sunset and sunrises. The land and the sea, we are drawn to the beauty and majestic nature of beaches. In a similar way, there is something mysterious and beautiful when a man and a woman come together physically in the covenant of marriage. A fourth truth that we learned in Genesis is that marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. Genesis two twenty four says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, a new family committed to each other, for better or for worse. In sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow till death do them part. And finally, Genesis teaches us that marriage is meant to be a relationship of deep intimacy, love, and vulnerability. Verse 25, Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, they were completely exposed to each other, not just physically, but spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and unashamed. They were completely vulnerable with nothing to hide. Again, last week we learned five truths about marriage from Genesis. We really learned what marriage is, what marriage is. Today I want to switch gears and, and answer a, a kind of a similar, or answer a similar question to what marriage is. Um, Now that we know what marriage is, a covenant, a one-flesh union between a man and a woman, uh, which starts a new family, I want to answer the question today, why marriage? Again, last week we learned what marriage is. Today I want to learn why marriage. For how beautiful these five truths are in Genesis, and they're not the only truths that we find in Genesis about marriage, but for how beautiful these five truths are, Why did God create marriage to be a covenant relationship between a man and a woman? Why did he make the marriage relationship foundational to the family, which is also foundational to society? I mean, if you think about it, God could have made the family anything he wanted to. Why one woman and one man? Why did he make it that way? That's the question I want to ask today. Again, last week we looked at what is marriage. Today I want to look at why marriage. And here's my goal. I want to tell you my goal before I even start this morning. I hope by the end of the sermon, you will feel the weightiness of your marriage covenant. That's my goal. By the end of the sermon today, you would feel the weightiness of the covenant of marriage. So if you would, once again, look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15. Ephesians 1 15. This is Paul and he writes this to the church of Ephesus. For this reason because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. Now Ephesians 1, 17 through 23 is a prayer from Paul. It's a prayer that he prays for the church, the church at Ephesus. He writes it out for them. Uh, And it's a prayer you uh, could infer that is a prayer he prays for maybe all the churches. In fact, if he was alive today, it's probably a prayer or some sort of prayer that he would pray for our church. And he writes this out, remembering you in my prayers, verse 17, that, this is what he prays for, That the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. Paul is praying that the church would know something, that they would have knowledge of something. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rules and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is Paul's prayer. He's praying that the church would know the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And that, that Christ, that Jesus is now head of all things because God has seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Paul wants the church to know that verse 22 that, that he, God, put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Listen, in verse 22 and 23, Paul goes from Jesus' authority over everything, that he's king of keen and lord of lords, with the name above all names, above even the angels, and he goes to his authority over his people, over the church. Paul prays, I want you to hear this, Paul prays that the church would know that Christ is the head of the church, which is his body. He says he prays without ceasing that the church would know this. Now, there's a lot in this prayer that we could talk about, but I want to focus on this analogy that Paul uses at the very end. Christ, Jesus, the head, the church, his body. It's a pretty simple analogy when you think about it. The head and the body, right? Intimately connected. My head is intimately connected to my body. At least I hope it is. (laughs) Therefore, when it says we are the body of Christ on earth, at the least, that's a pretty big deal. Let me show you what I mean in in just one way. If you would turn to Acts chapter 9 verse 1. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. This is uh, Saul's conversion, as we know him as Paul. But before he was saved. He was the persecutor of the church. And verse 1 says this, but Saul still breathing threats and murders against who? Who's he breathing threats and murders against? The disciples of the Lord. Who is that? That's the church. This is the early church. Paul was breathing threats and and murder against the church. He went to the high priest, verse 2, and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Did you hear that? How is it that Saul is persecuting Jesus? How could Jesus say, I am Jesus to Saul? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting when Jesus has already been raised from the dead and he's ascended into heaven. And Paul is obviously persecuting the church. Well, here's how. Saul was persecuting Jesus' body. The church is the body of Christ. In other words, Jesus so identifies with the church that when someone persecutes the church, he takes it personally. It should tell you something, right? It should tell you how important the church is to Jesus. With all its imperfections, with how ugly the church can be throughout the history of the church, it's the bride of Christ. It's the body of Christ. And Jesus loves it. Listen, Ephesians teaches us that from eternity past, God the father elected a group of people Ephesians 1 4 says this He, this is God the father He chose us in him before the foundation of the world To be redeemed by his son Ephesians 1 7 says this In him we have redemption through his blood The forgiveness of our trespasses To become the body of Christ Ephesians 1 22. And he put all things under his feet And gave him as head over all things to the church Which is his body And I just just don't think we understand how important the church is to Jesus. I think this is why Paul is praying that the church would understand this, that they would have knowledge of that relationship. So let me flesh this out a little bit, and maybe we can grasp just a little bit of how precious the church is to Jesus. If you would, turn to Titus chapter 1. Again, my my goal here is to look how how important the church is to Jesus. Titus chapter one, verse one, says this. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus, Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. That's the church. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. In other words, God made a promise to save the elect, that's the church, before the ages began. One theologian put it this way, this means that that before time, in eternity past, God made a promise that there would be a redeemed humanity. The existence of this promise means that God created a plan of salvation through Christ before the creation of the world. And this is Ephesians 1, 4, right? Before the foundations of the world. So here's my question. Who did God promise before the ages began? Again, verse 2 says this, which God, who never lies, promise before the ages began. I mean, this means before creation, before humans, before angels, before the created universe itself. All there was was God before the ages began. The Greek, word for word in Greek, is before times eternal. Eternity past. The only thing I can think of that makes sense of this is that God promised himself because he's the only one who lived in eternity past. Therefore, again, God promised himself. And that makes sense because we believe in a God that is triune. Triune. A God of community. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, God the Father promised another member of the Trinity to save the elect. He promised a redeemed humanity which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, before times eternal. Now turn with me to 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. 2 Timothy 1 verse 8. And here's why... I want to go to 2 Timothy now. The phrase, before the ages began, or before times eternal, is used in one other place, and that's 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Again, Paul's the author. It says this in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us, that's the church, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by anything we did. But because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us, that's the redeemed, that's the church, he gave us in Christ's before the ages began again before times eternal god the father gave us in christ before the ages began so here's my guess with these two passages god the father made a promise to god the son to give the son the church as a gift now, of course, Christ would have to come and receive this gift. He would have to redeem it. He would have to lay down his life for this gift. He would have to make the church his own. But this means the church is a gift, a gift from the Father to the Son. The church is an inner Trinitarian gift that was promised before the ages began or before times eternal. The church, in other words, is a love gift from the Father to the Son, a gift that he promised to him before creation itself. Now, admittedly, I'm reading a lot into these two verses, but listen, it fits the narrative of the Bible pretty well. So I think I'm standing on on pretty solid ground here. Let me just show you what I mean just within the Gospel of John. If you would, turn to John chapter 6, verse 37. We're going to look at a couple different passages in the Gospel of John. That I think allude to exactly this interpretation of these two passages. This is Jesus talking in verse... 37, John chapter 6, verse 37. And Jesus says this. All that the Father gives me. Did you hear that? Jesus is praying or talking about his Father. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Why not? Because this is a gift from the Father. There's no way he's going to cast out a gift from the Father. This gift is precious to Jesus because it came from the Father. So There's no way he will ever cast out this gift. Look at verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, who sent him? The Father. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. You see that? But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Again, the church, a redeemed humanity, is a gift. It was given from the Father to the Son, and the Son cherishes that gift. He's not going to cast it out. Turn to John chapter 10, verse 27. Verse 27. John chapter 10, verse 27. Another familiar verse and passage in Scripture. Again, Jesus is speaking, and he says this in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. In other words, not only will Jesus not cast them out, but no one's going to take them away from him. No one's going to snatch them out of his hands. Why not? Well, verse 29, my father who has given them to me. This is a precious gift from the father to the son, so he's not going to cast out this gift. Not only that, he's not going to let anyone snatch this gift away from him. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hands. Again, the sheep, the church, is a gift from the Father to the Son, meaning Jesus and the Father both will make sure that no one, no one will snatch them out of the Son's hands. It's precious. A precious gift. Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I love this chapter. It's one of the greatest chapters in Scripture. It's titled the high priestly prayer i go to it often uh, in sermons in this chapter jesus is praying for his disciples and it's clear as you go through the prayer that he's not just praying for the 12 he's actually praying for the entire church meaning in ephesians 1 you could read that and say hey this is type of prayer that paul would pray for us if he was still alive well In John chapter 17, this is the type of prayer that Jesus is probably praying for us right now as he intercedes for us as the church. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. Meaning, this prayer, you can assume, is the type of prayer that Jesus is praying for the church right now, for you individually and the church collectively. Now obviously I don't have time to explore all the deep truths found in this chapter but there is something I want to point out a common thread you see throughout the entire prayer. So let's look at verse 1. It says this, When Jesus had spoken these words he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said Here's the prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to him. Hear that? Jesus is saying, I'm ready to give eternal life to all whom you have given to me. Again, a gift from the Father to the Son. And Jesus is ready to give them eternal life. Look at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. There it is again out of the world, yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word look at verse 9 I am praying for them verse 9, I am praying for them I am not praying for the world, did you hear that? that may surprise you but Jesus is not right now interceding for the world he's praying for his bride, the church I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He's praying for the church. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me when? Before the foundation of the world. Again, I believe God the Father made a promise from eternity past to give God the Son, to give him a redeemed humanity as a gift, the church, a redeemed humanity that would serve and glorify him forever. So I'm going to say something that I think we all need to hear. When we read the Bible, we are way too self-focused. We make ourselves the main character of the story. I just want to be clear. The Bible is not about you. The Bible is not about you and what you need to do. The Bible is about him. Him. It's about God and what he has done. We, the church, redeemed humanity, are, are caught up in an inner Trinitarian gift to each other, a promise made before, before times eternal. A gift from the father to his son, a gift promised again in eternity past, a, a gift that is precious to the son because it came from the Father. Here's where we come into the picture. What is the church's relationship to Christ? The church is the bride of Christ. Meaning from eternity past, the father promised his son a bride as a gift. A bride that would be united to Christ as his own body, For eternity. Christ the head. The church his body. The church. Is the bride. Of Christ. That's why Christ would never cast it out. He's not going to cast out his bride. Given to him by the father. That's why there's no one. That can snatch the bride away. From his husband. Christ. Christ. Given to him by by the Father. The church is his bride, and, and despite all its imperfections, Christ loves his bride. The bride is a gift from his Father. And listen, this is how it all ends, right? Turn with me to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who is this? Jesus and the church. Jesus, the lamb, the church, the bride, and and there is much rejoicing in heaven over this marriage. Again, verse 7, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. I mean, this is the very end, not just of Revelation, but the very end of the story. The very end of of, of biblical narrative. And look what it says, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband that's how it ends it ends with god the father giving his son a bride adorned for her husband god brings home a bride for his beloved son as a gift and all the saints Will live with Christ in the Father's house for eternity. That's why Jesus says in John fourteen two, In my Father's house are many rooms. If they were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you. Jesus is in heaven right now preparing a place for his bride. Now why don't you think about this for a second? Last week we were in Genesis one through three. This week, right now, we're in Revelation twenty one the bible starts and ends with marriage again revelation 21 verse 2 and i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband now turn back with me to ephesians chapter 1 verse 22 I want to go back here because there's an amazing thing that I've, I preached through the book of Ephesians, and, and there's something that caught me about this one verse. Because the Bible is pretty consistent. From eternity past, God the Father chose a bride and promised that bride to His Son. Well, look at what Ephesians 1.22 says. Paul is praying that the church would know that He, this is God the Father, that He put all things under His feet. That's Jesus and gave him as head over all things to the church. That's amazing. Because here, God the Father is not giving the church to Jesus. Here, he gives Jesus to the church, which is his body. Meaning this was not just a marriage, but this was an arranged marriage. Arranged by God the Father, who both gives the church to Jesus as a bride and gives the son to the church as a husband. All arranged by the Father, Christ the head, the church his body. Now, with all that said, let me ask a question Do you think marriage is important? Listen, it's a testimony of Christ in the church. It's extremely important. And Paul prays unending. He prays that the church would know this, that Christ is the head and the church is his body. Listen, your marriage is meant to be a testimony of this. It's meant to be a testimony. It's meant to point you, your kids, your family, your friends, and, and everyone else to this truth. It's meant to be a testimony. Turn to Ephesians 5, verse 22. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Listen, in our culture, that is one of the most hated verses in all of Scripture. Completely controversial. In our culture, uh, this verse is considered outdated, old fashioned, even abusive, and evil. But listen to what Paul says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Did you hear that? Do you see what Paul does here? He grounds this command in theology he is saying glorify God in your marriage and in how you live and in how you submit wives to your husbands verse 24 now as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands controversial hated and let me just be clear very hard to do it's a hard calling. Again, offensive in our culture, and some of you really struggle with verse 24 and how to do it and what it means, but listen to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Listen, that's the harder calling. You hear me? That's the harder calling. I, I am convinced that if people understood the implications of verse 25, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, they would forget about verse 24. It wouldn't be controversial at all. The problem is, as a culture, we don't understand the implications of verse 25. Husbands are called to lay down their lives, lay down their preferences, lay down their wants, lay down everything for the good of their wives. To love her sacrificially as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I mean, Christ came and was nailed to a cross, naked, abused, shamed. He sacrificed everything for his bride. That's controversial. Christ gave himself up for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Christ did for the church. A precious gift given to him by his father. He sacrificed everything for her. Christ gave himself up for her. Now listen to this, verse 28. In the same way, men, do you hear that? In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Again, the church is a gift from the Father to the Son. It's a precious gift that the Son cherishes. Therefore, men, cherish your wives. Cherish your wives just as Christ does the church. Verse 30, because we are members of his body, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis. That's the marriage covenant. Listen to verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul tells us in verse 32 clearly what marriage is all about. And you know what? It's not about you. Did you hear that? It's about Christ and the church. I started this sermon by asking a question. Why marriage? Why did God create marriage? I mean, I don't know how many people have really just thought that question and meditated on it. Why one man and one woman in a covenant relationship till death separates them? Well, Paul tells us clearly This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Think about this. Christ's love for the church came before your marriage. Christ's love for the church came before marriage was invented by God in Genesis 1 and 2. Even before the ages began, before time's eternal... God the Father promised a gift, a bride to the Son, and the Son cherished that gift, sacrificed for that gift, loved that gift. Let me put this in another way. God didn't look down from heaven at marriage and say, you know what, that's a good analogy, I think I'll use that. Let's put that in the Bible. No, it's the other way around. God created marriage to testify to Christ's profound love for the church. Meaning, according to scripture, your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is not about your happiness that is so shallow. Your marriage is much bigger than you your marriage is a testimony of God's grace on the church it's a testimony of the gospel it's a testimony of Christ's love for the church therefore if you want to live a life for Christ start with the most intimate important relationship in your life next to God start with your marriage It's hypocritical to go out there and proclaim the gospel and hate your wife. Think about it. In other words, men, you want to glorify God? Love your wife. Cherish your wife as a precious gift given to you by God. Even if you think she's unlovable at times. Listen, listen, The church was unlovable. And Christ loved her anyways. While we were still sinners, what did he do for us? He died for us. Ladies, wives, you want to glorify God? Respect and honor your husband. Even if there's times where he doesn't seem honorable. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Glorify God with your marriage. Let your marriage be a testimony of God's grace to the world. Let your marriage be a testimony of the gospel. Again, I started with a question Why marriage? Well, let, let's let Paul answer this question on why marriage. Let's end here. Ephesians 5 verse 31 says this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. and The two shall become one flesh. That's marriage. That's the covenant of marriage. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God, our Father, Lord. God, I pray that we would understand Christ's love for the church. I I pray the same prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians, that we would understand that Christ is the head and the church is the body. That Christ was given to the church, and we also see that the church was given to Christ as a gift, a precious gift, Lord that we would understand that our own marriages were created to reflect this love. And even though we don't do it perfectly, Lord, and even though our marriages fell to to show the same love Christ has for the church, Lord, I pray that we would feel the weightiness of that and we would run to grace where we fail. God, I pray for those marriages that are struggling right now, Lord, that put on a good act when they're around other people, Lord, but at home both husband and wife know that it isn't what it should be, Lord. That they would reach out for help. they would reach out for those that would come alongside them. We all need people to come alongside us, Lord. That you would put that in their souls, Lord, to do that. God, I pray for those that are in this room, Lord, that may not even be in contact with their spouse God I pray that you would give them the faith to be faithful and loving and forgiving Lord within their own heart towards their spouse Lord that that would be a testimony of your grace God I pray for that that you would strengthen the marriages in this church in your son's name we pray